as we launch into a brand new series that's gonna take us from now uh, through to the end of June, uh, I want to start off by just kind of reviewing where we've sensed God leading us uh, in this last season. Uh, like many people across, feels like the planet, uh, as we come out of the pandemic, we sense that we're kind of restarting things again. You know, as we reopen, we're sort of replanting or, uh, you know, relaunching a church. And so as we do that, as we find ourselves in that season, we've wanted to provide some equipping to all of us personally and together to us as a church family uh, in order to kind of do that replanting effectively. And so, you know, as we've thought about it, the Bible actually uses the word equip in three different ways. It talks on the one hand of equipping in a mending and restoring kind of a way. And at the same time, it uses the word to refer to the laying of foundations. And then at the same time, it uses the word equip to refer to preparing for use or, or training. And so that should give you a bit of a picture of why we've gone through these moves in these last number of series. Before, before Easter, we spent a month in this aftermath series, allowing Jesus to do some mending and restoring through the trauma and grief and loss and division and weariness and exhaustion that we've all felt through the pandemic. And if you could use a little bit more mending and restoring, I'd encourage you to go back and re-experience those services again uh, on, our, on our online platform. And this last month, coming out of Easter, we've spent some time laying foundations in a very uncreative <laughs> series title called The Foundations of Faith, where we looked at some bedrocks to what it means to approach a life of following Jesus. And again, I would say that if you're still unclear, unfamiliar with you know, what a centered set approach is as opposed to a bounded set, or what it means to look at the Bible as the written word that points to the living word. Or what it means to be part of a community that isn't contingent on conformity. Or what a practice-based faith of contemplative spirituality is all about and why it matters. I'd encourage you to take in those services again so that you can have those foundations of faith kind of laid in you. But having done some mending and restoring and some laying of foundations, we want to devote a month or so to this preparing for use, this, this training idea. And I'm probably most excited about this because when I think about the impact of the pandemic, I feel like, you know, it's affected churches all around the world, but it's affected a church like ours, I would say, disproportionately. Because when you consider how relational our ministry is and how much we're seeking to be kind of incarnating the life and love of Jesus Christ in our world and, and amongst us, the pandemic has really scaled back and restricted that from happening. Sure, we've been able to kind of gather a little bit. We've been able to pivot to an online format like many other churches. But, but it feels like the pandemic, at least for us, has robbed us of our very best. And so as we reopen and as we kind of relaunch and replant, we wanna reclaim what it means to be at our best, not only as a community, but as individual followers of Jesus. And so we're gonna spend five weeks looking at what we understand to be our very best of a life with Jesus and to re-invite all of us back into that. 
We want to start kind of at the very beginning, I would say, where we feel like more than anything else, being at our best in a life with Jesus is actually living out Jesus' way of life instead of just talking about what living out Jesus' way of life looks like. We believe being at our best is living out the way of Jesus, not just talking about the way of Jesus. There's a pastor who once said, when all's been said and done, a lot more has been said than done. And we kind of feel like that as a community, that there's a reason why the watching world uses a word like hypocrisy to describe Christians in the Christian church, because we spend a lot more of our time talking about the way of Jesus than actually engaging in the way of Jesus. And we feel like from a faith perspective, at least from Jesus' perspective, that's a miss. Because when Jesus invited people into a life of faith, he invited them to actively follow him. Look what it says in Mark 1, verse 16. It says, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. They left their nets and actively followed him because what Jesus invited people into, another uh, phrase that's used often in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, is the invitation to come be his disciple. A disciple is literally, in a modern translation, an apprentice, where sometimes we translate it as a student, which I think is a little too theoretical, a little too academic of a concept than a hands-on apprentice. That's what Jesus means when he invites people to come follow him and be his disciple, to learn of him in order to actively live like him. And then when it comes to actively living like him, Jesus described what that would look like. Uh, among other places in Luke chapter 4, quoting a prophet named Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40. He says in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, Jesus understood that his way of life was an others-oriented, self-sacrificing, privilege-relinquishing way of life for those of less privilege. Jesus understood that his way of life was going to center around people that society had pushed to the fringes. And by orienting himself around people on the margins, he was going to be for a certain kind of person more than others. And so to follow Jesus, if you put those two ideas together, to truly follow Jesus is to actively engage in a way of life, but specifically to actively engage in a way of life that is for the kind of people that Jesus himself was most for, people who are on the margins or fringes of our society. 
We believe that that's what it means to be at our best in a life of faith in Jesus personally and together as a church family. But on top of that, we believe that the reason that that's at our best is because of the way that that way of life actually shapes our faith and our understanding of Jesus in the process. We feel like more than anything, that's what we've lost in the pandemic, kind of restricting us from experiencing that. You know, most of the time when the church and Christians sort of view spiritual growth, we gather in environments like this to kind of talk about what faith looks like. And then we'll group in little workshops or classes or courses or small groups to kind of process things further, to maybe discuss it in a more detailed way. And that gathering in groups and gathering in groups tends to be the kind of two-step for how we understand spiritual growth. But a number of years ago, we were struck by this passage in one of the gospel accounts in the book of Luke, where we see the impact of that way of life on Jesus' first disciples. There's an episode in the middle of Luke chapter 8, where Jesus' followers are in a boat with him, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, a storm emerges, and it freaks the disciples out. They get into a panic. They wake Jesus up, and kind of in a casual yawn, Jesus calms the storm miraculously. And then he goes back to sleep. And it says in Luke chapter 8, verse 25, in fear and amazement, the disciples asked each other, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. That was their response to this miraculous activity of Jesus. Who is this man? And I'm sure you and I would have the same reaction if Jesus did that in our midst today. But what we need to appreciate is that by Luke chapter 8, these disciples had been Jesus' disciples for some time. Meaning they had been, into, they had been able to gather around Jesus' teaching for a period of time. And on top of that, they'd been able to privately group together with Jesus to process that teaching with Jesus himself. Put in our context, they'd been able to gather with Jesus himself preaching to them, and they'd been able to join a small group with Jesus as their small group leader. They'd had no better opportunity to spiritual development in gathering and grouping than with Jesus himself. And yet in spite of being able to do that for some period of time, they were still at a who is this man level of faith and understanding of Jesus. I don't know if that strikes you, but it strikes me. And what strikes me even more is that one chapter later, things have changed. Because one chapter later, Jesus asks, asks them who the people on the street are saying that he is. And they say that some say he's John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the other prophets. But in Luke 9, 20, it says, what about you? Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are God's Messiah. Literally, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Savior sent from God. And all of a sudden, one chapter later, Peter knows he's clear, he's confident, and he's correct. He gets it. The light bulb has gone on. And I don't know about you, but it's made me wonder what Jesus did in between the middle of Luke chapter 8 and the middle of Luke chapter 9 to kind of change their understanding, to trigger their get it factor of who he is. What sermon did he preach? What conversation did he have? What huddle did he, did he gather them together and say, guys, that episode in the boat really disappointed me. What you need to understand is this. Well, what we see in between the middle of Luke 8 and the middle of Luke 9 is this episode in Luke 9, 1 and 2, where it says, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he had a stern conversation with them. No, 
It says, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. He sent them out. For the very first time, Jesus shifted his developmental approach from just gathering them and grouping them to actually engaging them in his way of life and engaging them, like him, in being for those Jesus was most for. And I would argue that because he did, spiritual light bulbs went on like they never had before. And Jesus' original disciples were able to understand for the very first time who he really was. That, like we say around here, experience for them was the best teacher. Around here, we call that experiential learning or experiential discipleship. Literally, the learning by doing. It was Confucius who once said, I hear and I forget. I see and I remember, but I do and I understand. And we believe that doing is actually the best learning, not just because we see this in the life of Jesus' original disciples, but because since then, science tells us so. In fact, we've talked about in this environment before, uh, a researcher named Edgar Dale, who did some research on learning retention rates based on different learning environments. And he developed this theory called Dale's Cone. You can Google, Google it if you want to study it further. But you can see on this chart that according to Dale's Cone, when you simply hear something, you retain 10 to 20% of that, which admittedly is not good news for environments like this. But if you provide visual aids, that retention rate goes up to 20 or 30%, which is why I'm showing you this chart and this image, so that you'll retain it to a greater degree. But notice at the bottom of the cone, when you teach others to do, or when you practice and engage in the learning yourself experientially, the retention rate, the get it factor goes up to like 75 to 90%. We understand that that's the power of experiential learning and that that's essentially the science behind spiritual development, that experience is actually the greatest teacher of all. And so as we're reopening and relaunching coming out of this pandemic, we want to re-invite and re-engage people into the learning environments that we believe are the greatest teacher of all, not necessarily our gatherings and not necessarily our groups as much as those might matter, but the ways in which we engage the kind of people Jesus was most for through what we call around here our anchor causes. Our anchor causes are initiatives of compassion and justice that define each of our Southridge locations that are intended to meet a core community need in each of the parts of Niagara where our Southridge locations find ourselves. But we want to meet those needs, not in a one-directional way that kind of reinforces or compounds a, a savior mentality, but rather one that fosters up-close and personal relationship, one that fosters mutuality and reciprocity and this wonder that we call friendship that makes the difference. Because when it does, we've discovered that experiencing Jesus' way of life, not just talking about it, but actively experiencing it, has been the best teacher time and time and time again.
I know that there are some of you that wonder whether you need to be involved in an anchor cause of your location in order to experience the power of experiential discipleship, and the answer obviously is no. You can engage in experiencing the way of Jesus and allowing that experience to be the teacher uh, in any way that is for those whom Jesus was most for. When you spend time with widows or with the elderly or advocate for LGBTQ plus folks or get to know uh, someone from the First Nations community and what it would mean to become a better relative with them, you can experientially learn. When you sponsor a kid globally or foster a child locally or get engaged in refugee resettlement, you can experience the power of experiential learning. It doesn't have to be exclusively only through a Southridge-stamped anchor cause. We just feel like the power of anchor causes is the opportunity to do this together and to provide no excuse for any of us to engage in this way because of how convenient and proximal it is in our community. And so, again, as we relaunch and as we reopen, especially as we re-engage the community life of each of our anchor causes, we want to re-invite and reactivate every single one of you into what we believe is our very best, not just as individual followers of Jesus, but as a church living out the way of Jesus, not just gathering and grouping, to talk about it. That's why we invest the majority of our church's resources in money and time and staff and programming and energies into fanning the flame of flourishing and developing the community life of our anchor causes as opposed to just our gathering and groups. And we want to invite you to invest the majority of your spiritual engagement into where we're investing the majority of our spiritual eggs, believing that that's where we have the majority of our spiritual impact. We believe that God can make the most difference in what we're now most investing in and hope that you will do the same and that you wouldn't miss out by simply reducing your spiritual development to the traditional two-step of gatherings and groups and gatherings and groups. I was talking to a pastor recently from the UK. His name's Adam, and uh, we were talking about his church, and his church is very engaged in their communities. They're a multi-site church, and in their various communities, they're involved in all kinds of ways to be about the kind of people that Jesus was most for. And he was talking about all of the different ways that we were, they were making a difference and all the ways that that was making a difference in them through mutuality and reciprocity. And I asked him about their Sundays and, you know, how, how their Sundays look and what they do on Sundays, and he said, well, well, he said, we love our Sundays, but he said, Sundays are the quietest day for us as a church. Sundays are our church's quietest day. And when he said that, I thought this guy gets it. He understands the way of life of discipleship and the way of life of being for the kind of people Jesus was most for, not just talking about Jesus' way of life, but actually facilitating it and engaging it. Because so often when we assume what a church is at its best, you know, you look at websites or the way churches advertise, they'll talk about a, a full room or the lights flashing or the band cranking and the music pumping and the hands waving. And that's what it means for a church to be at their best. Around here, gang, 
I don't believe that. As a leadership, we don't believe that. We believe that we're at our best when the room is buzzing at a harvest kitchen or intimate sharing is able to happen during a collective kitchen. We believe we're at our best when ruckus joy is happening in our Vineland anchor cause through a jerk chicken night or a domino tournament or a cricket night. And we believe we're at our best through the intimacy of a shelter retreat or the one-on-one connections that a Wednesday night Euchre tournament can have in our St. Catharines location. We believe we're at our best, not when we're talking about what a way of life of Jesus looks like, but when we're actively living it, not just to be disciples who are for the kind of people that Jesus was most for, but so that experience can be its best teacher and we can value from the benefit of experiential learning in the process. To give you a picture of what this looks like, I want to introduce you to a family in our community named Ray and Sarah Van Geest. If you're from our St. Catharines location recently, you'll probably recognize them because they're big players in our weekend gatherings. Ray's been a tech guy uh, for years, and so he's kind of involved in quarterbacking our services. And Sarah recently uh, has been uh, re-involved in one of our worship bands. And so you'll see them in active players in our gatherings and in our groups. But it's the way that they've engaged in the anchor cause of our St. Catharines location in the past number of years that's really been profoundly transformative in their lives. And so, again, as we reopen and as we relaunch and reinvite you into this way of life as a community, consider their story and whether their story could be yours as well so that you don't miss out on what it means to be people and to be a family at our best. Check out Ray and Sarah's story.